Well, today we're going to kind of conclude this series, this topic that we've been talking about, about the true character and nature of God, the love of God, how much we are loved by Him. Today, we're talking about a subject that actually I could do a whole series on. And I, but I'm trying to do it in one service. One service. And uh, this is probably one of the hardest things, message that I, I've had to deliver because there's so much to talk about to get it concentrated down to one service. And people's misunderstanding of God and they're so embedded. I mean, be honest, that religion wants somebody to burn. They want someone to be punished. Right? So today, the topic we're going to be talking about is the wrath of love. Understanding the wrath of God. Because the Bible talks about wrath quite a bit. And the wrath of God. And the, the day of wrath. And, and uh, the, the vengeance of God. And all of these things. And we spend a lot of time talking about how God's true nature is love. And it seems like it totally contradicts itself that God would have wrath, if you're thinking as we're going through this stuff. The nature of God. See, the thing of it is, is no one comes to God, no one reads the Bible completely neutral. We all come to church, we all read our Bible through preconceived ideas of who God is, right? And if we're, not, if we're not careful, if we don't listen to the Holy Spirit, we can actually cause the Bible to say things about God based on our preconceived ideas, not on what it's actually saying. And we can take one scripture out of context, one scripture, and build a whole doctrine out of it instead of looking at the whole counsel of the Word of God together. The fundamental flaw in all of our distorted religious thinking is the idea that deep behind it all, God is not really good. There's a, there's a part of us that deep down in us, we think that God's out to get us. That he's not really good. And hopefully, that has been changing in your life. Hopefully, you're seeing that God is completely on your side, and he is for your absolute good. But the problem is, is many people think that, you know, God is, is really not, not, not good. He's really, he's trying to find a way to send us to hell. The greatest obstacle for a gospel preacher that we face is, has nothing to do with convincing the masses of their wickedness or motivating them to good works or preaching fear and guilt. The true obstacle of a gospel preacher is convincing that God is good and that the good news of Jesus Christ is true, even if it sounds too good to be true. See, our distorted view of the story. See, this is, this is really what we've been taught. We've been taught this, that no one, ta- no one takes God's fruit and gets away with it. You know, God had a plan. He, he, he wanted man and woman to dwell in a perfect, a paradise with himself. And the only thing was is they weren't to eat his fruit. And what did mankind do? What did humanity do? We, we ate the fruit. 
And when God found out that we ate his fruit, he became angry with man. He wanted nothing to do with man. Don't, if, if he, could, he just wanted to throw them into everlasting darkness, everlasting torture, everlasting judgment. His, his blood vessels were bulging at the side of his head. Someone's got to pay. Someone's got to pay. And right when God was about to send his lightning bolt and destroy mankind, Jesus stepped in and said, hold up, wait a minute. Do it to me instead. And we know that that's completely false because the Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You know, in Isaiah, it talks about they looked upon Jesus and they they thought that God was punishing him, that God was cursing him. That's what they thought, but that wasn't. That was God himself taking sin, taking the curse, taking everything into himself and destroying it. Jesus wasn't being punished for our sins. He was destroying sin in the body of his flesh. That's a huge difference. That's a huge difference. That's the story we've been told. We've been told that, you know, God, the only reason God puts up with you is because of Jesus. And that's not true. They're the Trinity. They're not at odds with each other. It's not like Jesus loves you, but the Father hates you. It's not like Jesus wants to save you, but the Father wants to curse you. They're one. They're in unity. They're three in one. So that's the distorted view that we've had. The question we've got to ask ourselves is, the DNA, what is the DNA of God? If you were able to break down God to his very essence, to who he is, what would he be made of? What would God be made of? What is God? Well, the good news is that we don't have to guess. We don't have to speculate. The Holy Spirit tells us in 1 John. 1 John 4, 8. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. What is God? Love. And see, if you don't know that God is love, then you don't know God. You understand that? If you don't know that God is love, you do not know God. God is love. That's his core. That's his DNA. That's that's what he is. He has nothing but love. God is not schizophrenic. See, people say, I know that God is love, but don't go overboard. The same Bible that says God is love says that God is a vengeful God, that God is, is, has wrath, that God has wrath. So what they're saying is, is that, you know, God is love, but there's this other part of him that's angry, mad, and ticked off. So God is not love. He's not love. They think that you sugarcoat it by talking about God's love. God is not pure love. One day, he's pure love. The next day, he's pure anger. See, I'm not questioning whether there is the wrath of God, if the wrath of God is true or not. What I'm questioning is, what is the wrath of God? 
Because the Bible clearly says that there is the wrath of God. Right? So is God pure love, yes or no? Yes, God is pure love. Then can anything come from pure love that is not love? No. If God is pure love, nothing can come from him but love. Does God have well does God have actions of wrath? That's you thinking that's a trick question. Yes. God has actions of wrath. Then what is wrath? It's love. It has to be love. God is pure love. His actions are nothing more than an expression of who he is. Every action of God is an expression of who he is, and he is love. All action or expression of his nature are an expression of love. Wrath is not an expression of hate or anger toward you, but an expression of his love. So what is the definition of wrath? Here's the thing about it is that those that think that, you know, God is love, but he's also wrath, he's also anger, he's also hate, then God isn't pure love. He's not even, he isn't even agape. Agape, love, means unconditional love. That means that there's conditions to his love. He only loves you if you do what's right. You, you understand this line of thinking? That God cannot hate you because he is love. God cannot hate you because he's love. And if he fails to, to love you, then he's not even agape, let alone pure love. Pure love. So the definition of wrath found in the, in the New Testament. See, wrath can mean anger. Wrath can be an extension of anger, right? You all know that wrath. That's the wrath of men. But the Bible talks about righteous anger, right? Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, right? And we've been taught that you need to make up with your wife before you go to bed. And even though I agree that you should make up with your wife before you go to bed, that's not at all what that is talking about. There is a righteous anger against sin. There's a righteous anger against wickedness. There's a righteous anger against darkness. And Paul is telling the church, do not let the sun go down. Don't let your anger against wickedness and depravity and darkness ever fall asleep. Be angry and sin not. See, we have the nature of God in us, and there's something in us that wants to be angry. But we pick the wrong things to be angry with. Our, our, um, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, do we? But principalities, powers, right? Darkness, forces of wickedness. But we get mad at flesh and blood. We want our anger to be pointed at flesh and blood. Be angry and sin not. There, there is a righteous anger. See, the problem with some of us that are hooked up with sin is that 
You're not mad at it. You're not mad at sin. You're not mad at sickness. It's just life. You need a righteous anger. See, what we do instead of getting, having righteous anger towards sin, sickness, poverty, all of that stuff, you know what we, we get mad at? We get mad at ourselves. How could you do that again? We beat ourselves up. We, I hate myself. No. You do not get mad at yourself. You get mad at sin. And when you get mad at sin, it won't have any more power over you. That's a huge difference. See, there's something in us that wants to be mad because we have the nature of God. And there is a righteous anger, and it's against sin that's destroying humanity and trying to destroy you. We don't get mad at people. We don't get mad at ourselves. So there is, there is wrath, that work, the wrath of men that is in the way of the world and is filled with anger and rage. But when you're talking about an individual that's pure love, what is the definition of wrath? Well, in the Greek, it's the word orge. And not to be crude or anything, but that's where we get our word orgasm. So you see already that this is a very fun word. This is an exciting word. Right? It means properly desire as reaching forth or excitement of the mind. By analogy, violent passion. Err. Or justifiable abhorrence. By implication, punishment, anger, and uh, indignation, vengeance, wrath. Okay? So we understand, we understand punishment, anger, indignation, wrath, vengeance, wrath, because that's the wrath of men. But we're talking about an individual that is pure love. And it says that it's properly properly desire as reaching forth or excitement of the mind, violent passion. So if God is love and nothing can come from God but love, what is this violent passion? This reaching, like you're reaching for something trembling, like you want something so bad that you can't have. What is that violent passion that God has towards humanity? What is the wrath of God? It's a violent expression of his love, his passion, his desiring for humanity, his desiring for humanity to come to him, to enter into his love. He's reaching forward, just shaking and trembling. As mankind is in the bondage and chains of darkness. As mankind choose darkness over light. I love wrath. I love the wrath of God. I love the wrath of God. Because it's good for me. It's good for humanity. It's his last ditch resort and rescuing us from the jaws of hell. If God's wrath is violent, passionate love for us, then who or what is the target of his wrath? See, I love having kids because it gives me so many opportunities to share life lessons. Let's say you have a child and you know that they can do better at school. 
So you talk to them. You get a little mad. Why? Because you hate the child? No, if you hated the child, you wouldn't even say nothing to him. The Bible says that he that does not discipline his child hates the child. Hates the child. The reason why we don't discipline our kids is because we love ourselves. We don't want the child to get mad at us. Because that's what happens. When, when I, my wrath for that child, because they're not doing what I know they're able to do, and I know that what needs to be done is going to be beneficial for them down the road in the future. So what do you do? You bring consequences against them. You take the cell phone away, right? Or you take the video games, or you take Netflix or whatever from them. You take that from them. And because the child could have a perverted view of their parents... They say what? You don't love me. You hate me. And that's what humanity does to God. God doesn't love me. God's out to get me. My life stinks because of God. Why? What was my wrath? What was the, the wrath and the, my anger targeted at? At failure. At not doing your best at understanding that ignorance will cause you trouble down the road. The child was not the target of my wrath. I was trying to rescue the child from that which was looking to destroy the child. You understand? Sin, the target of God's wrath. We are the target of God's love. Sin is the target of God's wrath. Sin is not offensive to God. Do you realize that? See, we get this idea that, that the sin is somehow offensive to God, that, that God can be somehow controlled or manipulated or his holiness could be tarnished by sin. No, sin doesn't affect God. God is holy. Anything that comes into God's presence that has sin in it, it's either going to Go up in a puff of smoke or it's going to be refined like pure gold. Sin doesn't affect God. It affects you. It affects humanity. Can I get an amen? amen? I mean, look at our world. Sin is destructive. Sin is destructive, but there's those that love sin. There's those that want to throw off restraint. There's those that say that the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, is, is, is limiting, is causing them not to enjoy life, and it's really designed to protect them, save them, and give them life to the, to the full. God says don't sin, not because it affects him, but because it's going to kill you. The wages of sin is death. It's death. He's not trying to protect humanity because of what it does to him, but what it does to humanity. God's relationship with humanity in the Old Testament. See, that a lot of what we get from God's character, his wrath, um, we, get from, we get from the Old Testament. But let's just real shortly go through the Old Testament. Adam and Eve, they choose to live separate, independent from God, to know for themselves what is good and evil. And reap in themselves, what? Death. When that happened, guilt, shame, fear entered into the world. 
They hid themselves from God. God did not hide himself from them. God came looking for man. Right? God removed man from the garden. Why? Because he hated him? No. It says, least they eat from the tree of life and live like this forever. They could interpret it like the cell phones being taken away. You don't love me anymore. You hate me. Right? And that's what we do. They could interpret that as God hates them. God's mad at them. But we see that God continues to commune with man. man. Cain and Abel, he spoke with them. Cain and Abel like, went, went and go, whoa, who's this speaking to me? No, they had conversations with God. Cain murdered his brother. God had mercy on him. God had mercy on humanity all the way up to Noah and his family. And at that point, it says the world was full of wickedness. Full of wickedness. So God, it grieved God in his heart that he ever made man. Because of what they were doing to one another. We don't talk about this stuff in church, but if you do just some historical studies on the cultures, they were wicked. They were wicked. So what did God do? He decided he was going to destroy them all. Save eight. Noah and his family. And the animals. And he saves them. And then after that, God says, I never ever want to, will destroy the world with a flood again. Now put my bow in the sky as a reminder that I will not do that. And that bow means bow. And the bow points up. The next time God destroyed sin for all of humanity was in himself. Was in himself. But after that, God, what he did is, is he, he judged nations. He judged nations. Then he chooses Abraham. He chooses Abraham to be a, a, a path for redemption that through him all nations of the world would be blessed. All nations. So understand something. Him choosing Abraham wasn't because he loved Abraham more than everybody else. He had to choose somebody. He had to find someone that would be willing to believe God. And he chose an individual not to, just so the Jews could be blessed, that all the nations of the world could be blessed. All. All of the world would be blessed through Abraham. But you see that God brought judgment on nations. You have Sodom and Gomorrah totally destroyed, except for two. Well, no, four. Lot, his two daughters, and his wife. Three made it out. But God had mercy up to the four. And to understand, to understand that, that wickedness, we, we don't know wickedness. It said that Sodom and Gomorrah was filled with wickedness. It wasn't just, it just wasn't homosexuality. I mean, they, the angels showed up to Lot's door and the people were pounding down the door so that they might know them. 
And that word no doesn't mean, hey, what's your favorite color? Adam knew his wife, and they begot a son. They wanted to know them. And Lot was like, you know, how about my daughters? And they had to strike them blind so that they were able to get out of the city. Imagine the evil. Imagine, imagine the darkness that you couldn't even make it out of the city. See, we don't understand this. There, there's a point in the human heart where you become so hardened that you become reprobate. That it's literally impossible for you to turn to God. We, and we see this over and over again throughout the Bible. Look at this. In Genesis 15, 13, and 16, God said to Abraham, Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, they will be, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. This is Abraham, and God's talking to him, and letting him know what's going to happen to his descendants. They were going to be enslaved, in a land that was not their own. Where, where was that? That was Egypt. Think back. How did they get to Egypt? Joseph. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. It's a perfect example of, of Jesus Christ, if you go through that story. But anyways, to make a long story short, he rescued Egypt. The God of Joseph, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... That God rescued Egypt. There was a huge famine. And God gave the interpretation, gave the Pharaoh a dream. Joseph had the interpretation of the dream. They had a, a plan what to do through those times of, of plenty and the times of famine, right? And not only, not only did God rescue Egypt, God made them a superpower, they became the most powerful nation on earth because God loved the Egyptians. God loved the Egyptians, and at the same time, he was protecting the line of Christ, um, Jacob. They all came to live in Egypt. And what happened? What happened? Years go by, it says, and the Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, forgot about the God of Jacob, forgot about the God of Joseph, forgot about what Joseph had done on the behalf of the Egyptians. Then he got this weird idea that he was a god. And then he started to hate the Israelites. Then he enslaved the Israelites. And then he got to the point where he hardened his heart so hard that he literally killed the children of the Israelites. Killed them. I don't know if you guys ever think about this, but I don't understand genocide. I don't understand not the Nazis. I don't understand people that can go into a village and, and murder children or the innocent. How dark 
How hardened, how reprobate would you have to be to do such a thing? And I know that the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But it first says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And I believe that Pharaoh chose to harden his heart towards God. Because Romans clearly says that in each human being is the knowledge of God. In each human being is the knowledge of God. You're not here because you live in America. You're not a Christian because you live in America. You're here because the knowledge of God is in you and you responded to that knowledge. Other people suppress it. They suppress the knowledge of God. And they become foolish in their thinking. And their minds become dark. Pharaoh knew. He knew God. He, he, he chose not to remember the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham. He chose not to think that his wealth and his prosperity came from a loving God. But he himself popped himself up as God. And God, and God heard the cries of his people and sent a deliverer, Moses. And plague after plague, it said that Pharaoh repented and said that he let the people go. And when God eased up on the plague, what did it say? Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let them go. Tell me something. What kind of mind, what kind of individual would see the things that he saw and not fall on his face and beg for mercy? What kind of, what kind of individual would get to the Red Sea and see it parted and see these Israelites going across with no weapons, nothing but Egypt, silver, and gold. That's what Abraham, this, this prophecy came true. They gave them all their silver and gold, and they left. You know what that was? That was back pay for all that slave work that they did. They're going across. They see this, the, the Red Sea open, and they're going across, and you command everybody to chase after them. What kind of mind, what kind of twisted, perverted mind does such a thing? And Pharaoh's destroyed. And Egypt has never been a superpower since. Something that also is very interesting is it says that after all that happened, then in the fourth generation they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. God blessed the Egyptians through Joseph, but they forgot him. The iniquity of the Ammonites are not complete. Something, something should really, when you read the Bible, something should really like bring up a red flag when you read about the Israelites coming back into the promised land. How God told them to go in and kill everyone. And you get their houses, you get their vineyards, you get their homes. That sounds horrible. That doesn't sound like justice. That doesn't sound like love. But it says that the, 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 the iniquity of the Amorites have not complete yet. That means the cup of their sin has not been filled. See, there's a, there's a tipping point. There's a point in our lives where you can sin and sin and sin and to the point where you become reprobate. You become so callous and numb you, that you literally hate God. People hate God. And these, Amor these Amorites, you read about it. They, not to be crude, but you need to know. You need to know. 
it wasn't just a morality between homosexuality or adultery and all these things. They were having sex with their animals. It was common practice. Bestiality was common practice. It was common practice. They were taking their babies and throwing them in as a burnt offering unto their false gods. And God literally says, I, it never crossed my mind that you would do such a thing. And God sent, that in, sent Israel in to cleanse them. And he told, kill them all. Because there's a point where a person gets so demon-possessed, so hardened, so dark, that there is no saving. There is no saving. And it's, it's kind of like, to use a natural, term, a natural analogy, it's kind of like cancer. Let's say I had cancer in my arm. And the only thing to do is to cut the arm off. That's terrible. No one wants to do that. Why would you do such a thing to your body? To save the rest. To save the rest so it wouldn't spread throughout the body. You understand that? And there's times in humanity when, when, when there, there's a nation, there's a civilization, there's a people that becomes so wicked, so their, their ideas and their, and, and their darkness, that if it isn't pruned, if it isn't cut off, it spreads. It spreads. Jesus talked about a little leaven. Leaven's the whole loaf. And he's talking about sin. If you let a little sin in, play with a little sin, if you don't get it out, eventually you, it become more and more and more in your life. That's how sin works. That's how darkness works. That's how the kingdom of Satan works. God gives Israel, then God gives Israel the law, and they are to be judged by the law. They are blessed or they are cursed by their ability to adhere to the law. But even in that, God gives mercy. He gives them the, the sacrifices, the atoning sacrifices in that. And what is Israel propped up to be? A witness to the entire world of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A witness to the entire world of God's righteous, righteousness. Don't, all, the, all the nations of the world knew the Ten Commandments. They knew the laws of God. That, that governed Israel. Matter of fact, the prophets told other kings, the only way that you can get, win them and beat them in battle is to get from the inside out. You have to get them to go against the laws of God. So this is what God does. And, but eventually, he brings forth the Messiah. The witness, the witness throughout the Old Testament is of one coming of the Messiah. Now, here's the thing of it is, even though most of this, we get our idea of the character of God is from the Old Testament, it's not the true essence of God. You know, we can sit here and debate the Old Testament as much as you want, but we can't debate Jesus, right? We, can, we cannot understand the true nature of God through the Old Testament writings alone. They cannot be understood without the Rosetta Stone. Who is the Rosetta Stone? The interpretation of it all, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. We interpret the Bible and the nature of God through the nature and character of Jesus. Through Jesus. John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son 
who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him to us. Declared him. <laughs> no one up to that point had ever seen God. Really understood God. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has declared him to us. Has declared him to us. Colossians 1, 13 and 15. He has delivered us from the power of darkness, amen, and conveyed us into the kingdom of his Son, the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the invisible God. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. This is, one of the, this is great. God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to, to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoke to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory in the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He is the express image of the person of God. So we can argue about the Old Testament as much as you want. But if it doesn't look like Jesus and it doesn't look like love, you're wrong. I'm sorry. You're wrong. God is Jesus. To know God is to know Jesus. The day of wrath. There is coming a day of wrath. And it can be a day of celebration. Woohoo! Or it can be a day of dread. Based on your relationship with God, it's all a state of mind. See, the sun has a relationship with the earth. And we enjoy that relationship, right? Especially in the next couple months when spring and summer gets here. We really enjoy that relationship. And we have a good relationship. But if the earth was 100 miles closer in its relationship, or 100 miles further away, if it was 100 miles closer, it would be burnt to a crisp. If it was 100 miles further away, it would be an ice block. If you do not have a right relationship with God in your minds, you won't receive the blessing of God. Not because the sun has changed. The sun's the sun. God is God. He doesn't change. It's because you have changed or will not change in your relationship to Him. See, but we think it's the sun's fault. We think it's the Son's fault that we feel the wrath of God in our life. We feel like we're enemies of God, that we feel like we have judgment in our life, that God doesn't love us. It's not the Son's fault that the earth was burned up if the earth moves. 
The earth changed its relationship. It's not God's fault if you choose not to embrace him as a loving father, if you choose to hate him. I'm telling you, people hate God. They want nothing to do with him. If they don't want anything to do with the church, if they don't want anything to do with him here on earth, what makes you think they want anything to do with him when they get to heaven? They don't want nothing to do with God. People choose that. They choose that. Colossians 1, 19, 22, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through his blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by, the, by wicked works, yet now, now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. God, Jesus Christ, has reconciled the entire, entire earth. But if you do not embrace that relationship, if you don't embrace it, you still are alienated in your minds. Why? Because of the wicked things that you do. Because of the wicked things you do. You inter- your interpretation of God has to do with how you see God, not how God truly is. You understand that? Your interpretation of God is all dependent on your filters, on what you, your preconceived ideas of God, not on how God truly is. See, how we see God, the relationships that we, we have with God, it's so important. Look at Exodus. This is a perfect example. Here's a perfect example. Exodus 24, 16 through 18. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the crowd. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. The children of Israel... These people that were delivered from slavery, delivered from Egypt, that the entire trip they argued and complained. The entire trip they thought that God brought them out into the wilderness to what? Kill them. Right? God brought us out here to kill us. Oh, how we long to go back to Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt. See, this is their relationship with Him. With God, And they said that when the glory of God came on Mount Sinai, it, they, they, they told Moses and Aaron, you speak to God, lest we die. See, there was a different relationship here. And when they seen the glory of God upon the mountain, what was it to them? A consuming fire. But in verse 18 it says, so... Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up in the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Moses had a different relationship with God. He didn't, he didn't, see, he didn't see a consuming fire on the hill, on the mountain. He's seen what? The glory of God. And we, we find out later when, God, when, when Abraham asked to see his glory, God says, I will pass you. And let you see my hind parts, for no man can see God and live. And I'll let my goodness pass by you. The glory of God is the goodness of God. Moses seen the goodness of God. Moses walked up into the cloud, walked into the glory, spent 40 days with God. And when he came down, his face shone 
with that glory. He reflected the glory of God. And what did the other the Israelites do while he was up there 40 days? He says, we don't know what happened to Moses. But let us make us a God, the true God that led us out of um, Egypt. And they made the golden calf. See the difference in the relationship? See, it's, it's huge. It's huge. It's all depending on your relationship, dark and light. There are those that love darkness. There are those that love darkness. And there are, there are th- creatures of darkness, isn't there? There are things that, that if you're in prison all your life, in darkness, and you were brought out into the light, it would be torture. It would be torture. Blinding light. Light would be torture to those things that love darkness, that live and dwell in darkness. And God is, lives in a, what? In an unapproachable light. There's no shadow in turning. That means wherever God is, wherever his presence is, there is no darkness at all. And those that love darkness, when the presence of God comes, it's agony, it's pain. In John 3, 16, 21, it says, God, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light and his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. People hate darkness or hate light. People hate light. People hate God. God came to earth. Light entered the earth. And people killed him. He spoke to them. And they looked to stone him to death. God spoke to them face to face. And they wanted to throw him off a cliff. He was judged between a criminal and Jesus. And they yelled, crucify him. As he was on the cross, they mocked him. People hate God. People hate light. Stephen. I'm getting ahead of myself, but Stephen... It says that he was preaching the gospel to them. And it got to the point where he said, that talking about Jesus Christ and that you crucified him. And it said that the, the heavens were open and the glory of God was manifest. And he seen Jesus stand at the right hand of God. And it says that his face shone like an angel. And what did they do? Did they fall on their knees and say, glory to God. Hallelujah. 
No, they said that they stuffed up their ears and they grinded their teeth. They gnashed their teeth at the glory of God. They gnashed him. And what did Jesus say over and over again about hell? Hell is weeping and gnashing of teeth. They can't stand the presence of God. They can't stand the light of God. They can't stand the love of God. They want nothing to do with it. People hate God. And there's coming a day that Jesus will bring all of this to an end. There will be no more darkness. There will be no more evil. There will be no more sickness, disease. There will be no more wars or rumors of wars. There will be no more pestilence. There will be no more genocide. There will be no more hatred. And those that love the darkness, it will be hell to them. It will be hell to them. Second Thessalonians 1, 6-10, Since it is a righteous thing that God to repay the, with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. See, those that hate darkness, those that hate God will, tri- will trouble you. They'll persecute you. Have you ever experienced it? They hate you. They don't want nothing to do with you. It's amazing how, how, you know, you can't say anything about the Muslim religion or any other religions, but the one religion you can mock and make fun of and as much as you want is Christianity. They hate it when people stand for righteousness. They hate, hate it. Unless the church rises up, the world will get darker and darker. But in that darkness, the light will shine even brighter. Righteousness and holiness will will shine even brighter in that darkness. And they'll hate you more and more and more, those that love darkness. Do you know, leave it to Beaver, when when that came out, the very first episode almost was not allowed to air. You want to know why? Because they had a scene in the bathroom, and they were going to show a toilet. They ended up allowing them to show the tank of the toilet, not the bowl, just the tank. And it aired. The only reason I say that is to get you thinking a little bit. Was that, 50 years? Have we become a little callous to good and evil, righteousness, holiness? And there are, th- there are things that we do that are unrighteous. There are things that we do that are unholy. We do have iniquity in our life, don't we? Because we all have not renewed our minds. But the good news is we're not filled. We're filled with the Spirit of God. We're not filled with iniquity. There are those that are filled with iniquity. Our, our world is changing. But, but Jesus says that he'll come back and And all the suffering that you did for his sake, for the gospel's sake, he will give you rest. And in verse 7, And give you who are troubled rest with us 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destructions from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among those who believe because our testimony among you it was believed. When Jesus comes... There are those that are going to reap agony and destruction from what? From his presence and the glory of his power. You know, there's some translations, some newer translations. Usually the King James, if it's screwed up, usually the King James screws it up a little bit. But the King James got it right here. That that judgment, that that punishment, that destruction comes from the presence of God. Our newer translations say, that they are removed from the presence of God. And that's where we get this idea that hell is somehow separate from God. It's void of the presence of God. And that's not true at all. David says, where can I go that you are not? If I go to heaven, you are there. If I'm on earth, you are there. If I go to hell, you are there. God is everywhere. God is everywhere. And there's going to become a time where his presence will be manifest everywhere. And we call it heaven. And for us, for us, we'll be, he's going to glorify himself in the saints to, to admire among those who believe. It's going to be blessed. It's going to be awesome. But for those that love darkness, for those that hate God, his love, the manifestation of his goodness is agony, torment, and hell. God is love. He's pure love. Nothing can come from him but love. The presence of the Lord is punishment to those that hate him. The light of the Lord is agony to those in darkness. They will be punished by the presence of God, the manifest presence of love. And the reason why those newer translations get this wrong is because if you just get a uh, strong concordance and look up the word from, the word from, it means to exude from. So, so this destruction is exuding from the presence of the Lord. It's coming from the presence of the Lord. The very presence brings an, agony and torment. They're gnashing their teeth. They're stuffing up their ears. Look at this. In Revelations 6, 14, 17, Jesus also talked about this. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, he covered everybody, hid themselves in caves and in rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The presence of God in these twisted and perverted souls, in their minds, was wrath, was anger, was destruction, was agony. They would rather go into caves and ask the mountains to come down on them, to hide them from the presence of God. 
But we celebrate, we rejoice, we worship, we praise, we long for the presence of God. There are people that don't want Jesus to come back. There are people that aren't ready to meet God. Why aren't you ready to meet God? Because you don't think he loves you. You think he's going to reject you. Because your relationship with him is all screwed up. It's the great, the wrath of God, the day of wrath is the most exciting day of our lives. But if you love darkness, if you have married yourself to darkness, it's going to be absolute horror. Absolute horror. I mean, those that crucified Jesus, they hated God. Those that stoned Stephen, those that persecute the church to this day, they hate God. They hate Jesus. They hate him. See, there's a great throne judgment. And I know that God is merciful, God is love, and that he longs for all men to be saved. That hell wasn't even made for man. It was made for Satan and his angels. I don't know if once you stand at the white throne judgment, if you can cry out to Jesus. I hope you can. I don't want no one to burn. I hope you can. But I do know this, is that you don't change. Who you are right now is who you will be when you leave your body. If you hate God now, you're not going to get into his presence. If you hate his church, if you don't want nothing to do with his church, and you don't want nothing to do with God, when you get to heaven, you're not going to want nothing to do with him. You don't change. Now, there's some people that may be ignorant. There's some, like, some people that just didn't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't know. My hope is the hope that all men might be saved. But if you are in torment, it's because you choose to be. You choose not to embrace Jesus. You choose not to enjoy the party. You're a party pooper. And God is not going to force himself on anyone. Then why, why is he allowing them to be in torment? Because it's love. Because he can't change. When he engulfs the whole world, because that's where we're going to be living. There's a new heaven and a new earth, right? And we're on earth. And there is no sun. There is no moon. Why? Because God is our light. There's no darkness anymore. There's nowhere for you to hide. God cannot change himself. He is love. He exudes love. He exudes his holiness, his righteousness, his glory. And there's nothing he can do about it. Only you can change your relationship with God. He's like the sun. There's nothing the sun can do to change. Only the relationship of the earth change it can change. Eternal bliss or eternal torment. We've been talking about this. Eternity will either be eternal torment or eternal bliss based on your relationship with God. Your relationship with God. Revelations 14, 10, 11. The same shall drink of the wine of wrath of God, which is poured out without 
mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Why are these people being punished? Because God loves a good barbecue? Because he likes to see people burn? No, it's because they are still. It says, because they worship. Who worship? They're still worshiping the beast. They're still worshiping his image. And receive the mark of his name. They're worshiping darkness. They're worshiping Lucifer. They're worshiping the kingdom of darkness. They don't change. They're not changing. And what's interesting, we talked about, we talked about how the Israelites seen a consuming fire, but Moses seen the glory of God. You know, Daniel talks about, about in his prophecy about the end times, he talks about seeing the throne of God in a river of fire consuming the wicked. Right? We see here, there's a lake of fire that hell, the beast, is going to be thrown into. It's interesting that John also said that before the throne of God, there was a sea of glass. And he said that protruding from the throne of God was a river of life. Hmm. Could it be your relationship and how you interpret those things? For one, it's life. For one, it's a sea of glass. For those that hate God, they see destruction, torment, and everlasting pain and agony. Those that are still worshiping the beast are made to drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is wrath is what? His passionate love. God's presence is pure love. And pure love is torment to those that hate God and love darkness. And in closing, I just want to share another analogy that I want to share with you. Am I going, I'm going long. I didn't even feel like it today. I really feel like this is something that God gave me to help explain this. And if you have a if you have a child and they come up missing and you find out they're down in the ghetto in a crack house. And you love your child. You go down to that crack house. And as you go down there, you're seeing all types of, you see prostitutes, you see people selling drugs, you see winos, you see all this destruction and depravity. And you get into this house and it's just filled with the same thing, filled with drugs, filled with, with uh, destruction, filled with uh, sexual immorality, prostitution, sex slavery, all these things. And you're a loving father. That house is about to see your wrath. If you do not, if that house does not see your wrath, you're not a loving father. And that child 
that child could see that wrath and think that that father hates me because they associate themselves with what's being done there. But the father comes in, brings in wrath, destruction, and he violently takes his child from the jaws of death, brings them back home. And the child, after seeing that, after being rescued, chooses to associate with that rather than their loving father and goes back and lives in that house. And the child doesn't know that the father called the police. And the police are about to bring a SWAT team down upon that place. And all of those people are going to go into prison. See, Jesus Christ has rescued the entire nation. Or not entire nation, entire, entire humanity. He has rescued us. But if you choose to love darkness, if you choose to marry yourself, if you choose to see yourself in Satan rather than in God, if you choose to hold on to darkness, when that day of wrath comes, it's it's of him cleansing the earth of everything evil, of everything dark, of everything. And all it is is his his presence being manifest in the earth. You know what's going to happen to us? It says, when we see him, we will be like him in a twinkle in an eye. And it explains it like this. He says, we will be refined by fire, like pure gold. You know what that means? Anything in you that's not like Jesus in your mind and all that, he's going to burn it out. Not by his love. His love will be manifest in your life, and anything that's not like him will be up in smoke. But we're not filled with iniquity, so we're not going up like chaff. We have the Spirit of God within us. In the movie, The Patriot, I don't know if you guys remember that movie. Mel Gibson, those are some great movies. Those are father and son movies. But uh, in The Patriot, the British kill his son at his home. And they leave his plantation and he gathers up all the, his ammunition, all his weapons that he has in the house, his two younger boys, and he runs through the woods ahead of them and set, sets up an ambush. And they come down through there, and he explains to his sons what he wants them to do. And the wrath of that father comes down upon them, those, those British. And if you remember, he, would, he had a tomahawk, and he was going, was taking out all his wrath upon them. Blood was flying. It was all over him. He's a bloody mess. And if you remember his children, his children didn't want anything to do with him. It was a while before they wanted anything to do with him. They, they, they stayed away from him. They were afraid of him. See, because what they saw was unbridled love for his child. But they interpreted it as, man, if he would do that to them, what will he do to me? And that's what humanity has taken from God. He sees God judging sin. And because we see ourselves as sinners, we think if he would do that to them, what will he do to me? 
And the good news of Jesus Christ is that you are no longer sinners, but saints. You have been born again, made new. And we have nothing to fear in wrath. We have nothing to fear in wrath. So we see that those that, those that hated, those that hated uh, God, that they were to drink the wine of his wrath and they were tormented. Look at us. Look at the saints. Look at those that have a different relationship with God. Revelations 21, 22, and 27. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of sun or of moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall never be shut at all. Day by day there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter in anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We see, we see those that love darkness in the presence of God's holy angels and the Lamb in torment. We see those that love God. We see those that are written in the Lamb's book of life. We see them enjoying the glory, and the illumination of the presence of God. It's the same experience. It's the same passionate expression of love on both of them. But for one, it's eternal torture. For another, it's eternal bliss. We do not have a schizophrenic God. We don't have a God that's angry one day and loving the next day. We have a God that is pure love. And everything he does is an expression of that love. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Karis New Testament Church. For more information or to contact us, go to www.karisntc.org. And remember, you are deeply loved, highly favored, and destined to reign in Christ Jesus.